So, Jay, between Zarus in Curse of the Mutants and now Lilith, I gotta wonder, do any of Dracula's kids like him? They absolutely do not. Okay, what if I expand the definition of like to don't try to murder on the regular? That would still be a resounding nope. Jeez, family dinners must be tense. I mean, given that we're talking about a family of vampires, I imagine that their dinners are probably too busy being terrified. I see what you did there. Good. Anyway, uh, that said, Dracula's kids have their reasons for disliking him as much as they do. I mean, not only is Dracula a really terrible father... Would you call him an undeadbeat dad? I would not. <laughs> but I would certainly never challenge your right to do so. Good. Uh, carry on. Anyway, there's, there's that, and he's also got his whole homicidal intent on world domination shtick. So, you know... Okay, wait. Uh, challenging his bids for world domination, I get, but aren't his kids also vampires? Well, two of them are. But the third is actually part... Human? Angel. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 223 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, coming to you live this week from Vegas Valley Comic Book Fest. Yes, if you're here right now, thank you for being here. If you're listening to this in a couple of weeks, time is very strange, as you probably know from reading X-Men. Um, yeah, if you're listening to this in a couple weeks, hopefully all of our exhortations to vote will be aimed at the far future. Those of you here now, please vote. It's really important. It's how we prevent the dark future that I was reading to you about earlier. Um, for those of you listening on, at home, uh, there's, there's a picture book. It's of Days of Future Past. It's very bad. We were doing read-alouds before the panel started. But right now, we are here not to cover the Days of Future Past picture book. We are here to tell you about the second time the X-Men fought Dracula. Because that's a thing. I mean, only the second time. I love that there have been so many. Like, Dracula is one of my favorite weird Marvel things, because he's, you know, this dude in the public domain, and finally they were allowed to have vampires, and he's just everywhere. So we've got the universe with mutants and people who can fly and super soldiers, and then just, like, freaking Dracula. And sometimes he lives on the moon. Sometimes. Okay, speaking of Dracula, Dracula in the Marvel Universe was largely known in the 70s from a comic called Tomb of Dracula. Uh, it was written by a guy named Marv Wolfman, who, okay, Marv Wolfman's a great comics writer, but I'd like to point out that his name, the guy that was writing the Dracula comic, is Wolfman, and that is great. Should we assume, then, that his comics were very Dracula defamatory? Uh, I mean, Dracula was the main character, but also the villain, so kind of. Not much we need to know about Tomb of Dracula, except that it was awesome and Blade first premiered there. Uh... It did feature a character named Rachel Van Helsing, the granddaughter of, you know, that Van Helsing. She did some badass stuff, and she's going to be relevant to this story. Right. All you really need to know here is that the Van Helsing family is a vampire-hunting dynasty. You also need to know a few things that happened in Uncanny X-Men number 159, which coincidentally is the first issue that legendary New Mutants artist Bill Sienkiewicz drew. And if you ever want to see Bill Sienkiewicz doing Marvel House style, you, could, you should look that up, because it is a surreal, surreal thing. 
It totally is, yeah. I mean, it's good, don't get me wrong, but it's not like New Mutants good. So let's briefly go through what happened there for some context. In 1982, after the Dark Phoenix Saga, the X-Men consisted of Storm, Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Kitty Pride. The X-Men took Kitty Pride to Greenwich Village to meet up with her parents, and while they were there, Storm got mugged and, um, bitten by a peculiar mugger, um, who, who decided that, that their way of mugging her would be to bite her in the throat. She started acting strange and wearing a fancy scarf with the, the letter D on it, and what, what, you know, nefarious business could this have been? Well, Kitty Pride, a uh, 13-year-old wunderkind that she was, figured things out pretty quickly. Storm clearly had been bitten by a vampire. So Kitty dressed up as a vampire hunter and tried to help, and uh, initially it didn't work so well. What we did find out, though, was that not only had Storm been bitten by Dracula, she had been bitten by the unique to the Marvel Universe. And well, no, he's 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 all over in, in new depictions. This is this well, is not a Marvel Universe unique representation of Dracula. But this specific type of sexy Dracula, I've right. only ever seen adequately in the movie Bram Stoker's Dracula, where he's Gary Oldman. So just imagine him in this story as Gary Oldman from that movie, with lines like, Come to me, woman. Yield to my dread embrace. Join your blood and life and soul to mine as, with a kiss... I make you the bride of the Prince of Darkness, Dracula. Fun fact, Dracula, and in fact a large part of romantic vampire mythology, is based on Lord Byron. That freaking guy. So, the X-Men found Dracula and fought him and his large collection of vampire powers. Um, important thing we learned during that fight that had nothing to do with vampires... Um was Sorry, the fastball what? special thing. Oh, right, yes, yes. This was the first fastball special, and this was before they had the, in, the, the regular setup for it. Um, now, normally, when we see characters do a fastball special, it's, it's basically a launch move. It's specifically Colossus throwing Wolverine at someone, and there are a couple different variations on it, and I actually, be, from the moment when you texted me saying, OMG, Colossus picked Wolverine up by his butt, I, um, I, I actually thought at length about how that related pra practically, because, I mean, if you're just going to throw someone, if it's just going to be a, a if, if you're just going to have the one source of, of propulsion, that's probably the most ergonomically sensible way to do it, but there are also a lot of versions of the fastball special that have Wolverine basically jumping off of Colossus's throne, in which case it's usually, he's usually got his feet planted in Colossus's hand as well. Okay, okay, so two options. I, I wonder if they just decide based on, like, the day they're having. Like, is it a butt day or a foot day? I don't know. Well, I imagine it, it depends on things like how far Wolverine needs to go and, you know, how relatively tired Colossus is and stuff like that. Well, anyway, point being, it was actually Kitty in her vampire hunter getup that found the partially vamped Storm and stood up to her saying, fine, if you're going to kill me, then kill me. And that brought, that woke Storm up saying, wait, I don't want to kill Kitty Pride. She's great. I don't want to kill anybody. Man, I hate this Dracula guy. There is at least one other universe in which Storm took a different path and decided, well, I'm not going to kill Kitty, but I am going to make her into my, my thrall. Um, that Storm is known throughout continuity as Bloodstorm. She's great. She was actually in X-Men Blue kind of recently, until she eh, wasn't. That at was least depressing. a version of her. Um, she originally made her debut in the series Mutant X, which um, is one of the few series to ever feature Havoc as a protagonist. It's true. Anyway, Storm did successfully turn on Dracula and save the day, and Dracula promised to never mess with her, the X-Men, again, in his typ typical Draculic manner. 
I knew from the moment I tasted your blood that you were a woman of rare beauty, rare courage, rare strength. You got all of that from blood? Oh, yeah. Okay. Those qualities attracted me to you. Now, they have defeated me. So... Something you should know if you're not wildly familiar with the X-Men is that for a long time, X-Men annuals fit a very specific structure, and almost all of them involved a villain falling in love with Storm. I mean, who wouldn't, right? It's frickin' Storm! Yeah, totally. Um, but in fact, X-Men villains, the, the more honorable of X-Men villains, the way you can tell that a villain is going to be vaguely sympathetic is if they fall for Storm. So we've had, you know, Doctor Doom, we've had Archon, who, who I think we, we introduced um, actually at this convention a couple years back. Um, we've had, you know, Dracula's falling, fallen for her. I'm trying to think of who else. I'm sure they've been... There was that one Dynasty Dream X-Men who I don't remember anything about. He was an alien. He was blue, I think. Okay. Well, there you go. But let's move on to King Size X-Men Annual number six. Not fun size, although it is fun, uh, in which more Dracula stuff happens. This is divided neatly into three chapters. We will start, unsurprisingly, with the first one. So I mentioned when we were talking about X-Men 159 that it was Bill Sienkiewicz trying to do Marvel House style. This is a fun follow-up because you get to see a lot more of sort of his own sensibilities bleed in. But he's still kind of doing house style, which involves a fair chunk of, like, dramatic um, romance comic stuff. And so we start with Kitty Pride um, having an absolute temper tantrum um, in, that is dramatic in ways that, that only 13-year-olds can achieve, especially as drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz, um, because she has discovered that her parents are getting divorced. I mean, it's rough. My parents were divorced. I, I get it. But yeah, this girl is just flailing all around and, and screaming at the very heavens themselves. And eventually she screams and cries herself to sleep. She wakes up with Storm looming over her with pointy teeth. And that is the end of Kitty Pride. Storm moves through the rest of the mansion, killing all of the X-Men in turn, including, by the way, Cyclops, who I guess has rejoined the team since. Uh, yeah, this is when Cyclops came back briefly after the Dark Phoenix Saga. I believe he would leave again a little bit later. Okay, so this is post-Octopusheim. I'm not sure exactly how it lines up. Something. Octopusheim was the weird Cthulhu fortress that Cyclops ended up in, and Magneto gave him a shirt that like showed a lot of skin and was kind of an octopus. It was amazing. Uh, that was when he was running around with Lee Forrester, who is a ship's captain and one of the two most competent human beings in the Marvel Universe, along with Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau. But I feel like we're burying the lead here. The important thing is that Storm has killed all the X-Men, and they're all dead, and this was the shortest panel ever. Thank you all for coming. Hammy, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, that's it. That's, that's the X-Men actually ended with this annual. Yeah, yeah. All of the comics since then, you have imagined. Okay, but it is pretty great the way it's drawn. Like, there are these four identical panels going down the left side of the page, and I wish we'd actually uh, remembered to get visuals. But we'll, we're going to paint a picture with our words. We are? Uh, yes, we are. Okay. Uh, and it's just sort of these, this different colored panel of the same image of Storm just striding boldly forward with blood running down her chin. And then to the right of each of those panels, her biting into one of the sleeping X-Men. And the font has gotten all, like, gothtacular, all medieval-looking during this. It's very dramatic. It's great. Speaking of portrayals of the X-Men, something I want to mention from earlier in the issue is that there's a great moment when, when Kitty is, is, is upset about her parents divorcing um, and, and various X-Men are trying to comfort her. And Cyclops and Nightcrawler, who both grew up in extremely non-traditional families, are just standing in the background looking completely baffled. What happens here? Nightcrawler's mother was like a weird witch lady that made Dante's Inferno to teach him a lesson one time, and Scott was partially... He's just extremely orphaned. Oh, yeah, it's rough. Yeah. Uh, so, that's all terrible, but Storm doesn't mind too much because she morphs into a very funny-looking bat and goes and finds Dracula on a cliff and has sex with him. Okay, so I love the bat thing because the dialogue is very 
very clear every time someone turns into a bat that they're turning into a bat, not, you know, semi-bat, bat, not werebat, not bat form, a bat. And I'm putting bat in, in scare quotes here because what they turn into is definitely not bats. It is basically big humanoid bat. They look like, they look like man, or is it man thing? Not man Man thing. bat. Man bat. They look like man bat. Um, and the fact that the comic just straight refers to them as bats and has characters saying, oh, they've turned into a bat when they do this, and they're huge, they're human-sized, too, is, is just, I, I just find it incredibly, incredibly funny. It just, it just doesn't stop entertaining I mean, me. Bill Sienkiewicz has focused a great deal on highly textured imagery, on mixing the realistic with the horrifically surreal. Like, he doesn't have time to worry about little things like what bats look like, come on. Can you imagine getting one of those, like, stuck in your chimney? Oh, God. Or your hair? Ugh. That'd be terrible. I guess, I guess I have a lot of hair. I need a lot of bat, maybe. Uh, but, psych, it's all a dream. Everything's fine. Uh, we probably should have known because of the unnecessarily elaborate font. That is not a Waking World Earth 616 Mainstream Marvel Universe font. Uh, it's specifically Storm's dream. And Storm decides that she is going to go after Dracula because clearly this dream is a sign that despite his promises to leave her alone, he's still got some kind of hold on her. So, so she's gonna go. She's gonna go find Dracula and 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 tell him what's up. But strange things are afoot at the Circle X because Kitty Pride, watching Storm leave, then goes and finds Colossus doing homework and gets all creepy, like sexy. She vampire hypnotizes him. him. She's not a vampire, but she does what's clearly like vampire hypnosis—the look into my eyes. We're gonna go fight Dracula thing, I guess. And that brings us to chapter two, in which Storm flies all the way from New York to England because she's awesome. Um, yeah, so she, she arrives at Dracula's uh, English castle because he keeps them scattered around the earth at, at reasonable intervals and also the moon, and uh, discovers none other than Rachel Van Helsing, whom we totally skipped Dracula um, attacking and, and vampirizing in chapter one. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Rachel Van Helsing was like a major character in Tomb of Dracula, and Chris Claremont, who wrote this story as he wrote most of the X-Men in the 70s and 80s, basically just said, hmm, who is a character that Dracula can, uh, can victimize for dramatic purposes? How about her? Yeah, Man. and Marv Wolfman was really mad. Um, he, was. he was. He was really upset. He thought it was entirely unfair, which it probably was. Um, but yeah, so she's a vampire now. Well, a thrall, it's kind of unclear how vampire No, she's a vampire. She has fangs, and she's eventually, spoiler, going to be killed by, by sunlight. She's a vampire. Okay, fully um, vampire. She's just a vampire who's also a Dracula minion. <laughs> I mean, if Dracula's king vampire, no question there. Yeah, and, and she stars. had thought he was dead. Every Dracula story, by the way, starts with everyone thinking Dracula was already dead. And sometimes he is, and they have to reassemble him and then fight him, like Castlevania style. Yeah, yeah. There's the rib and the eyeball. Yeah. So Dracula does still have a hold over Storm after what happened in Uncanny X-Men number 159, and it's quickly clear that she can't really do much against him, and she's kind of horrified and disgusted by this whole thing. How could I have found Dracula noble, attractive, perhaps because he embodies everything I am not and can, must, never be? If you've never read a Chris Claremont comic, um, number one, you should. He's amazing. And number two, that line right there basically crystallizes what it is to do dialogue like Chris Claremont. Yeah. Maximum drama all the time. It's great. So the reason that Dracula has gone back on his vow and called Storm here is actually pretty sensible. He needs something stolen, and, well, Storm is a master thief. 
Um, and he's, what he specifically needs, needs stolen is, is an ancient spell book, book which contains something called the Montesi formula. So what's the Montesi formula? The Montesi formula is a spell or possibly word problem involving trains leaving from opposite sides of the country that is capable of killing all the vampires in the world all at once. Dracula, needless to say, is really not a fan of this whole concept. For a brief but more extensive exploration of the Montesi formula, you can read a lot of Tomb of Dracula, or you can skip straight to the X-Men 92 ongoing series in which it figures fairly significantly. We're kind of biased because we were in the X-Men 92 miniseries, so we're, yeah. we're, we're big fans. So, the Montesi formula is in an evil book, and that's being stored in a fortress in Pendero. The fortress is built on a holy site, which is why Dracula or Rachel Van Helsing, who's been similarly vamped, can't just go get it, because they would, you know, sizzle or whatever. Storm, however, is only a little bit vampire-y and is a master thief, so she's totally going to don a stylish green cat suit and use her weather powers and thiefy skills to get past all the various traps and lasers and stuff. Well, she gets past the traps, but she doesn't actually make it that far because she is stopped by Shadowcat and Colossus. And Shadowcat actually shoots Storm with a crossbow. Now, you would think, given the, the context we had previously, that these two have maybe figured out that Storm's gotten redraculate and are out to stop her. But that is not the case. In fact, Kitty grabs the book and suddenly Kitty's speech bubbles change. They get all evil looking. I really, really love that trick, and I love how thoroughly and how extensively it's used in this issue, just having, having the, the scary gothic speech bubbles when someone is doing vampire stuff. I really like the idea of, I'm sure there are comics out there where the letterer or the editor just kind of screwed up, and it was actually just someone ordering an egg and cheese sandwich, or something similarly innocuous, but with that font. I think there was actually like a running gag with that in Order of the Stick many, 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 many years ago, like 20 years ago. That was, that was where the muffin came from. Oh, that was a different webcomic. But anyway, point Some, being. There was, there was, anyway, some or other webcomic that we read in college explored that concept, probably, maybe. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you all for being here for the parts that usually get edited out of the podcast. It's an insight into our very souls and our webcomics in college history. We vaguely remember some things. Um, now, in, in her gothic font, Kitty specifically calls Dracula her sire, and she says she's going to use the book to kill him. Um, Dracula, also in quote-unquote bat form, um, manages to save Storm from the security guards, um, whom, whom Kitty and Colossus have also roused, and they flee, bringing us to chapter three, which begins with Storm suddenly in Cairo, where she grew up with her suddenly alive again parents. As you may recall, Storm's parents were killed and she was trapped under rubble due to some war stuff, basically a military plane crashed into a building when she was a kid. That's why she's claustrophobic, that's why she ended up on her own and wandered off to become a weather goddess for a little while. Now she's here as an adult, but it's like one of those dreams where you know it's going to happen but you can't really change it, so that thing I just said, all of that happens and Storm starts screaming and everything is terrible. It turns out that what triggered this dream is that she is sleeping in a very small enclosed space, specifically Dracula, who has very... Specifically Dracula's coffin. Yeah, I was going to say Dracula, who has specific ideas of what being a good host entails, has, has stuck her in a coffin for the night, or the, more, the, or the day, probably, for the day. Mm -hmm. Hey, he's doing his best. I mean, you know, it's like, it's hard to see past your own, uh, your own cultural experience sometimes. So Dracula is about to fully vampirize Aurora so that they can, they can really oppose Kitty and the book, when he is stopped by a perhaps familiar sound effect, Zark. 
Those of you who read X-Men regularly will recognize this as the distinctive and peculiar sound made when someone remembers, because it's completely irregular, it's not like Bamford um, snicked, by Cyclops's optic blasts. Although there was that one time in the unbeatable Squirrel Girl where Squirrel Girl points out that Wolverine actually doesn't make any noises when his claws come out. He just says the word snicked every time it happens and refuses to acknowledge that. So maybe it's like that with Cyclops. Zark! You have a better Cyclops voice than me. You want to try? Zark. There we go. Okay. And there you have it. So there's a big fight, and there's judo, and wolf forms, and bat forms, and mist forms, and mutant powers. All of the X-Men are here, by the way, at this point, not just Cyclops. Um, the X-Men saw that something was terribly wrong with Kitty and Colossus, and they, they went to follow suit and try to figure out what was going on. Um, they still don't know, though, because Kitty breaks off to, tr to chase Dracula to the catacombs, and Colossus follows. He's acting brainwashed still, like he doesn't really know what he's doing or why he's there. And there's a reason for that, which is that he's brainwashed and doesn't really know what he's doing or why he's there. Mm -hmm. And the comic does a pretty good job, actually, of making it clear that something's up with Kitty, that she's not quite herself. The Colossus is clearly in her thrall, but that we don't know what's going on with her. Like, maybe she just really hates vampires after what happened in Uncanny X-Men number, one, number 159. Or maybe she was like me and tried to read Bram Stoker's Dracula when she was 10, but it really scared her a lot, and there was the picture of Dracula with blue skin on the cover and a white mustache, and she hid it behind her bookshelf for the next 10 years until she got the guts up to read it, theoretically. That he book totally was so actually did that. I did. No, I got to the part where, like, um, uh, what's his face? Uh, Keanu Reeves goes to uh, stab Dracula uh, while Dracula's asleep, but he sees, like, him crawling on the outside of the castle, and I'm like, no, I cannot handle this. And for the first time in my life, I abandoned a book, and also for the first time in my life, I hid a book behind a bookshelf. It's okay, I read it later, it was great. And that's what Kitty did, and now you know. The cover's really not that scary. It was for me! Like, he's just a blue dude with a big mustache. Yeah, but he's giving you the side eye, and he's got red eyes. They're scary. You read X-Men. How many blue dudes with red eyes did you regularly see on the cover of your comics? Well, none of them were Dracula! Valid. Anyway, point being... We, the readers, know that something's up with Kitty. It's becoming clearer and clearer that she has powers of her own. We still don't know why. We just know she wants to kill Dracula and, I guess, all the other vampires in the world with the Montessi formula. Now, Kitty and Colossus have chased Dracula away. They've escaped the big fight as Rachel Van Helsing, using her vamp powers, has been fighting everybody else. So Cyclops decides that the shortest uh, distance between two places is a straight line, well, technically a curve if you're accounting for the Earth's curvature, but he doesn't, and just blasts straight through the floor and many, many, many floors into the catacombs. That's how you can tell that someday he's going to lead X-Factor. <laughs> yes. X-Factor is well known for never going through doors, but instead making their own very violently. Yeah, they try. Um, so down in the catacombs, they find Dracula fighting Colossus, and Dracula manages to hypnotize Wolverine, um, and Rachel Van Helsing briefly comes to her senses and begs Storm to kill her, which Storm can't, but Kitty gets her hands on the book in the process of all of this, and she starts reading, in even fancier gothic script, somehow, the Montessi formula. Klaatu Verat. Wait, no, nope, not that one. not that one. Um, but she, like you in that moment, is cut off midway, because Nightcrawler somehow recognizes that this, this spell, if she casts it, will steal her soul. How does Nightcrawler know this? We don't know, no, but he's, he does. he's Eastern European. He knows all about magic and mobs with pitchforks and, and torches. Also, to be fair, he was raised by, like, Margali Zardos. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe witch. this is, like, the kind of thing that you have nursery rhymes about when Margali Zardos is your adoptive parent. Oh, man, those kids must never sleep. Yeah, no, they really don't. 
Oh, geez. So apparently, yes, this spell, had Kitty completed it, would have devoured her soul, even if it would have actually killed the vampires. Nightcrawler doesn't want to see her soul devoured. He's, he's buds with Kitty. He thinks she's great. But Kitty isn't exactly herself. And in fact, at this point, she reveals, you know, who she truly is, or at least who's been possessing her. And that is a frequent hitchhiker in other people's bodies. In fact, um, Dracula's daughter, Lilith. So I want to talk about Lilith a little bit because her origins are bonkers. Oh, she's so great. Her like, fashion sense is even, too. Yeah, no, her fashion sense is, is pretty typically like vampire 70s fashion, which is to say she's wearing fishnets and a bodice with a bat shape on it. Um, I just figured she used her employee discounted Hot Topic uh, to, to the hilt. That too. Um, but no, so, so Lilith's deal is that she was, um, she was Dracula's daughter before Dracula got, got vampired. So she was a normal human with normal human parents. And Dracula really disliked both her and her mother. So he, um, let's see, when she was a very small child, he made her watch getting, uh, people getting impaled. But she was like, she wasn't even one at that point. So I'm not sure if she would have remembered that. No, it's no, just around there in the Dracula's a bad parent and or took t- take your daughter to work day too seriously file. Um, <laughs> take your daughter to impaling But day. He, he really hated both Lilith and her mother. And so he, he sent them off to, to live with... with a group of local Romani, and um, Lilith's mother killed herself. Uh, Lilith was raised by a friendly nearby sorcerer, as one is, and after Dracula got vamped, um, he showed up and killed a bunch of the the family members and and neighbors of that sorcerer, including her son. And the sorcerer, as revenge, cast a spell that turned Lilith into a vampire intent on destroying Dracula. But, like, without any vampire weaknesses, so basically her yeah. entire vampire point is to be an anti-Dracula vampire yeah. with amazing fashion sense. Um, but, yeah, so that's how Dracula's daughter became a vampire in ways that entirely disconnected to Dracula being a vampire. Mm-hmm. It's the Eastern European thing. It's what Nightcrawler was worried about. He would have explained if he'd had more time. I Would he have, though? I, I don't know. Well, anyway. Anyway. Um, Dracula wants to kill Lilith and the X-Men. That's his plan until Rachel Van Helsing once more is able to briefly shake off his influence and impales him on a, on a spear. Um, they are going to, Wolverine is about to sever his head from his body, which would prevent him from resurrecting again when the entire castle falls down. Because if there's anything you should know about Dracula, it's that he is a load-bearing boss. Mm-hmm. Again, if you've ever played Castlevania, you know how this goes. Later on, uh, with Dracula dead, Rachel waits for sunrise and basically does the, yeah, can someone mercy kill me because this is going to suck otherwise? So Wolverine does because he's Wolverine and killing is what he does sometimes. And once again, it's very dramatic as Rachel turns into a long blonde haired, red dressed skeleton and says with her dying breaths, Look at the sun. It's so bright, so beautiful. But the whole reason that he staked her was to keep her from having to be killed by the sun because it was apparently a super bad way to die. So I'm not sure what's happening there. That, that feels like an inherent and immediate contradiction. I think if she'd stuck around for a little bit longer, she'd start with the sizzling and the burning and the, and the decaying. But it's really unfortunate because, again, Rachel Van Helsing was a major character and a badass female almost leading character, which, you know, back in the 70s and 80s was, was less common. And, um, yeah, she gets off in a comic completely unrelated to the one she was best known for, and she has never come back. Dracula, of course, has come back many, many times. Rachel Van Helsing, that's the end of her as far as I know. So far. Any Marvel creators listening to this? 
now you know who to put in that comic with the X-Men clones who are out in space who everyone's forgotten about since the mid-1980s. Oh, man. Except so, for me. I don't know if um, if any of you have listened to the uh, episode we did with um, Chris Thurmont and Louis Simonson in your Comic-Con a while back, but we brought up this story that they had worked on where it turns out there are a bunch of X-Men clones based on alien embryos who thought they were the real X-Men and ended up going off into space to right wrongs. The, the writers of those stories had forgotten that the story existed. Literally, everyone has forgotten those X-Men. But they're so great. Yeah, so they're they so good. They're, yeah, no, they're, they're literally out being deep space superheroes. They're so good. How great a concept is that? Anyway, um, Lilith pops back at the end of this story for a lot of denouement. So much denouement. God, there's a lot of denouement. Um, and she, she explains that this was a long... Rube Goldbergian set up to kill her dad, which only sort of worked, but close enough. And now that Dracula is pretty much mostly probably dead, Storm won't turn into a vampire when she dies, and everyone will always live happily ever after. Um, and Kitty reverts back to Kittyhood with absolutely no memory of what happened. And if they're nice, they won't tell her, but they're totally gonna. I mean, let's just lend her the issue. She really deserves to know. Okay, so there was some fallout from this. Annual's sometimes exist kind of isolated in time and space, frozen in amber, detached from the rest of the universe. Sometimes they have fallout across, across lines, and this was one of the latter set. So the Montesi formula is going to come back. In fact, Doctor Strange will eventually use it and kill all of the vampires um, who will stay dead until they get better again because vampires are fun. Uh, also, as we mentioned, there's the X-Men 92 thing. Um, Dracula will be back, again, to do all kinds of stuff. For instance, uh, he'll be told by Cyclops that he should follow his heart. He will also lead a vampire army on the moon, because Dracula is hilarious. That was from a comic called Captain Britain and MI-13, and it's delightful, and I highly, highly recommend it. I believe Lilith also joined the, um, the Howling Commandos at one point during that same era. Oh, cool. That, that, she must have gotten along well with them. Uh, they could talk about how being an ethnic stereotype is really fun, and she could talk about how Lydia from the Beetlejuice cartoon had the best fashion sense ever. Um, Wolverine, at one point, in a what-if story, will become Lord of the Vampires in, a, in America, where vampires may already control our nuclear arsenal. It's <laughs> a great little side note in that story. And Rachel Van Helsing, unfortunately, as we've discussed, will remain dead. Um, Sorry, Marv Wolfman. Yeah. Uh, so, that is King Size Annual number six. It is a, a delightful piece of early 80s history. Um, you can find it in back issue bins. It's on Marvel Unlimited if you subscribe to that. Uh, it's a lot of fun. One of the things I really love about the Marvel Universe is that you can have these lines that are thematically consistent. You know, the X-Men are about oppression. They're about bigotry. They're about how to respond to that. And sometimes they're also about, you know fighting Dracula or going to space. I love that we, we live in a Marvel universe. Well, we don't, but we, we try to every time we open a Marvel we comic. We live in a universe where there is also a Marvel universe yes. portrayed in comic books. A wherein... nested Marvel universe uh, where you can have just all of those settings side by side. It just When I was a kid, that made everything feel so vast and exciting and unpredictable. And I, I enjoy that Marvel, there's no genre that's, that's going to be untouched. It's glorious. So... That's the continuity we've got. We tried to keep it condensed down since we know we've got limited time, but that, I think, leaves us with about 10 minutes for questions. We are research nerds. A lot of how we are able to pull out the information we are on the show and answer the detailed questions we are there is that we know where to look that information up. So we will say, if you, can st if you stump us here, um, keep an eye on the website. We'll, we'll look up the information and make sure we get an answer to you at some point. So for now, does anyone have questions? Any questions about anything related to X-Men? You can also just ask general questions about other things. I yes. don't know if we're going to be able to answer them, but, you know, we can try We can lie to um, you. And actually, I'm going to go ahead and uh, get one of these mics into the audience, and we can answer on the other. 
All right. Oh man, chairs really are hard. Chairs are incredibly difficult. We have, for the, the you can picture us, um, listeners. We are we are at music stands on. We're, we're sitting on directors' chairs with music stands very close in front of us, and Mike's set up in front of the music stands. And um, the logistics of getting in and out of this setup without moving large portions of it, which we try not to do because it makes scraping noises and there are microphones, are um, complicated. So let's get a question from. Hey, it's Andy. Isn't this the same continuity? Somewhere in this continuity, isn't there a thing with the Star of David where it turns out the Star of David is as effective as a cross? Uh, yeah, it's that any, any holy symbol that the wearer believes in, and that is established in X-Men number 159, the first time that Kitty comes into contact with Dracula. It's actually pretty great. Uh, yeah, like you alluded to, Andy, Kitty's Star of David, Dracula does burn at the touch of. Wolverine at one point tries to make a cross with his claws, but Dracula's like, oh man, you don't even believe that, I don't care. But the Nightcrawler holds up a couple of pieces of wood in a cross, and Nightcrawler is, of course, uh, famously a believer. In fact, one time some people manipulated him into sort of temporarily becoming a fake mutant pope. It was a whole thing. No, no, priest. They were going to manipulate him into becoming a fake pope. Yeah, if, if they hadn't been stopped. That was a weird era of X-Men. Any other questions? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hello. Oh, that is a phenomenal costume. Is that North That's Star? North Star. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, yes, yes, Sally Blevins. Oh, I'm See, so I'm pleased. I'm wearing sunglasses and the lights in my, are in my eyes, so I can't quite tell, but the North Star is very shiny, which helps. Okay, and we're totally going to get pictures of, of if you guys yes, are posting them. Um, so whose Vegas show would you rather see, Lila Cheney's or Dazzler's? And why? Oh, man. Um, oh, that's I, a really good question. We know, given that we know that they've played together in the past, I see no reason that we shouldn't be able to have our cake and eat it, too. But... Um, you know, I feel like given the number of reflective surfaces, shiny objects in general, emphasis on, on blinky lights in, in Vegas, Dazzler is definitely, like, more context-appropriate. So, so I think what you do is you go to, like, the big, fancy, official Dazzler show, and it's great, and it's got a huge budget, and it's all very carefully put together, and then you go to, like, some crappy dive bar after, and Lila puts on the most, like, blisteringly glorious concert uh, Yeah, ever. okay, yeah, so we go to, we go to, the, we go to the big... Dazzler concert, concert, but the secret Lila after show. Exactly. Uh, we'll, we'll let you know where that is if we yes. find out. No, nobody's told us, unfortunately. I, I hope they do. Oh, no. We, well, the, the, the show that you should all go to, by the way, if you're here, is at 1 p.m., and that is the PDX Broadsides who are going to be playing in this theater. They're delightful. They're good friends of ours. Um, we, we, we have received a tip that there may be a recognizable piece of music uh, showing up in their lineup this time. Yeah, you may have we'll heard see. in past years here. We're so sorry. <laughs> all right. Uh, any, uh, who else has a question? We would love to tell you about X-Men. Yes, indeed. Uh, now that you've been doing the podcast for a few years, have your opinions changed of any characters since you've been reading like 30 years of comic books? Like ones that you've liked, you don't like now, or vice versa? I have joined the cult of Shatterstar. Yeah. No, yeah. totally. Um, I, I was kind of neutral on him before. I thought he was kind of silly. But um, from a combination of having now read a lot more early X-Force and hanging out on the podcast Discord, which is like... The, the highest concentration of shameless Shatterstar apologists that you will find anywhere in the universe um, who will, will tell you at length about why he's awesome and, and told me at length about why he's awesome, and I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> uh, for me, it's actually a couple of the mentor characters. Um, specifically... And I think we, our opinions may differ here, but Charles Xavier, I've really come around on. Like, yes, he can be horrible, but there are so many... There are so many parts in the early 90s and the mid-80s where he either owns up to mistakes and tries to atone for them, or where he just has this, this spirit of 
passionate generosity and concern coming through that I, I like him a lot more than, than I used to, actually. And similarly, Cable, I think I mainly hated him back in the early 90s because he turned the New Mutants into X-Force, and that was different, and I liked it the way it was, damn it. But he's actually a really fascinating character. I mean, pretty early on. Not immediately. Immediately, he's just a, a grizzled guy with a gun and, like, also another gun and another one over there and some capsules. And I don't know what's in those capsules. He has a robot arm. Yes. Uh, but he's very shiny. He gets interesting, like, within maybe a year or a year and a half of, of then. And I'd always assumed he didn't get interesting until decades later. So uh, the two of them for me, I would say. Jay, do you have any others? Is it mainly Shatterstar for you? Um, I mean, Shatterstar is the one who jumps to mind for me. I'll say I will slightly contest your your your. I'll disagree with you on Charles' point because I've 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 never. I mean, I have always generally been of the opinion that Charles Xavier is a really interesting character and one with consistently good intentions that are more or less supported or thwarted by his follow through. Mm -hmm. And this is an era where we're seeing him. I think act in ways that are more in line with those intentions and more thoughtful than we often do. I still think that he shouldn't be allowed to be responsible for children. That's probably for the best. Well, Emma Frost agrees with you. Yeah, and Emma <laughs> is right. About many things. Maybe not all. But a rum had it coming. <laughs> um, okay, uh, who else has a question? Any question Maybe about anything got time for One more? I think we one or two? I don't know. How are, how are we on time, people who are doing official things? Is anyone... There's no one. We've got about two, two minutes. minutes, so yeah, right. we can we can do quick uh, questions. Uh, my apologies for falling behind on the podcast. I haven't listened in a little bit. It's I, okay. I haven't either. <laughs> I wanted to ask: Have you guys weighed in on the Deadpool movies? Uh, you're you're talking about Cable. Actually, made me wonder what you thought of Deadpool two in particular. Um, I think Deadpool two was a lot of fun. I think that it is kind of unforgivable that its creators who were writing something that deliberately meta were unaware of the women in refrigerators trope, which they, they have stated in interviews that they just had no idea that it was a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but that said, I think, uh, I, I feel similarly about it to the way I felt about Deadpool 1, in that there's a part of me that's actively resentful that the Deadpool movies are better X-Men movies than many of the X-Men movies. I'm like, no, that's not how it's supposed to be, but to acknowledge that they're really enjoyable and well done in many ways. I also really appreciate that, again, again it continues to back up the, our, our statement that Deadpool is, is not primarily an X-Man. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to say also about, um, it's, it's also just really fun to watch Ryan Reynolds being that happy, because he, <laughs> seems, he seems like a really good dude, and he is so clearly having the time of his life in those movies, and it's just really heartwarming. Mm -hmm. So, And they're also, they're also just a lot of fun. They're, they're well-made movies. Yeah. Good juggernaut, good, like, explicitly queer relationship between characters, good Shatterstar. I was really entertained yeah, by that oh, part. Yeah, oh, Shatterstar was, was, was utterly delightful. Speaking of, of delightful actors who are, who are a lot of fun, um, the guy who, who plays him spent the weeks leading up to it posting on his social media about how excited he was and how he was expecting there to be a Shatterstar spinoff. Well... <laughs> I mean, I guess part of him kind of spun off. Oh, <laughs> oh, Miles. <laughs> and I suppose uh, with that, we're about out of time. Yeah, that feels like a good note to end on. Thank you so much to all of you for coming out and seeing us. Thank you to Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival and specifically and especially to Suzanne Scott, who's brought us out here the last few years and hopefully will continue to because we love the show so much and to the Clark County Library System for supporting comics, for putting on this show and generally because libraries are really awesome and critically important parts of our society and you should all use them, take advantage of them and donate to them. Um, thank you up in the sound booth. 
You are amazing and we love you. And speaking of production, thank you especially to Matt Hunter, our incredibly patient and lovely producer who is going to be making this sound um, probably nicer here than, than it is live, or nice, nicer on the air than it is live. Um, finally, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, which is really amazing. Um, that's why we're, allowed, we're able to stay on the air. That's why we're able to stay completely ad-free, um, because we have a bunch of amazing listeners who um, support us on Patreon. Thank you guys again for making everything that we do possible. Yes, and yeah, thank you all so much for being here. We really enjoyed talking to you about Dracula and about exploding shatter stars. And uh, if you want to come and talk about X-Men, we're like uh, right outside the door, right past the broadside, so you should also see. So, Also, I have the uh, World of Reading X-Men Days of Future Past picture book with me. Um, so, you know, extra impetus to come visit, I guess. Yes. But yeah, enjoy the show, and um, we'll see you next year. Take care, all. Thank you. This episode of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men was recorded live at Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival and produced, as always, by Matt Hunter. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Phoenix returns to Earth in Excalibur. And everyone gears up to fight the future.